coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. The recent Devil's Ivy vulnerability has caused quite a rash in the security journalism community. But is it really as bad as Poison Ivy or just a bunch of hyperbole? We'll discuss. Then, you've heard about public key encryption, but ever wondered what lies beyond? We've got a fascinating discussion about some of the possibilities beyond public key encryption, future improvements, and how to solve the problem of identity. Then, of course, we've got Dan's latest updates about his awesome Let's Encrypt setup and a cool new utility he's made that you can use at home. Plus, we've got your fantastic feedback, a rockin' roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnip. Welcome to TechSnip. Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on July 18th, 2017, and is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week is the certificate master, the only one I would trust with my SSL. That's right, the one, the only, Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Good afternoon. Wonderful to Evening, be with you here morning. today. You have been a absolute gentleman. Chris is away from the studio. He's off on a vacation. So I've been filling in on our earlier program. We're getting a little bit of a late start, but we've got a great show today. I'm super excited. How about you? I'm excited. Can't you tell? Yeah, I sure can. Uh, that's why you're such a good explainer. You don't reveal your emotions. But I guess we should dive right in, unless you have any uh, front matter today. Um, no. Okay. Well, then, we've got some breaking news. Yes, we do. Now, there will be several things in this article that, that I'll, I'll mention that people will say, oh, that's not right. Oh, that's ridiculous. Uh, and yes, it is. So... This is a story on Wired.com. It's actually on a bun- bunch of places, but I read this one first, and then I looked at a couple of others, and this one seemed to make the most sense. Basically, it's a vulnerability in a shared, not a shared library, but a library that is used by many different applications and pieces of hardware. Usually, it's in embedded systems. And they're saying, oh, my God, this is one of the risks of having this sort of thing. If you, if everyone's using the same code, if there's a vuln found, everyone's going to be exploitable. Well, yes. But then when it gets patched, everyone can be patched as well. So anyway, starting off into the article, it says, hack brief. Devil's Ivy vulnerability could aff- aff- afflict millions of IoT devices like how they use the word afflict. Yeah, right. I'd, I'd say effect, but... So, I'll read the first paragraph because I like the way they've worded it. And there's other bits later on where I think they're just trying to exploit the situation. The security woes of the Internet of Things stem from more than just connecting a bunch of cheap gadgets to a cruel and hacker-infested Internet. Often, dozens of different vendors run the same third-party code across an array of products. That means that a single bug can impact. I hate that use of the word impact. Pardon me. 
a startling number of disparate devices, or as one security company's researchers recently found, a vulnerability in a single internet-connected security camera can expose a flaw that leaves thousands of different models of device at risk. So, if you were to say that there's a vulnerability in OpenSL, you wouldn't be saying that there's thousands of models at risk. You're going to say there's thousands of computers at risk. Sure, there's lots of stuff that's running that OpenSSL, but it's still hundreds of thousands of devices, well, millions of it's OpenSL. But anyway, that, that the issue I take is is the way that they're actually describing this. So on Tuesday, that's today, that, that's only, this is only a few hours old. Senrio revealed a hackable flaw it is calling Devil's Ivy, a vulnerability in a piece of code, piece of code excuse me, called GSOAP. What's Devil's Ivy? Well, I looked that up. Devil's Ivy is actually a real plant. Um, and looking at it, I think I've seen this plant in many ha- in in shops and in houses. And why is it called Devil's Ivy? It's called Devil's Ivy because it's nearly impossible to kill. It also happens to be toxic to dogs and cats, but that, that's a side issue. Yeah, that's another matter. Yeah. So, while, while Genivia has already released a patch for the problem, the patch may have been released, but they haven't released a new version of the code. I was there this afternoon. They've released a patch for the problem. It's so widespread and patching it so potty, spotty on the Internet of Things that it could persist unfixed in, large, in a large swath of devices. Yeah, okay. They're using hyperbola there. But while Internet of Things devices might be the most vulnerable to the devil's ivy flaw, Tanji points out that companies including IBM and Microsoft are exposed as well. I went and looked on on the company's website, I didn't find any reference to IBM or Microsoft. Mm. It doesn't mean they're not using it because uh, um, GSOAP is an open source product. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, people may be wondering uh, what you, what is GSOAP. I was basically. about to ask, yeah. Yeah, there you go. It's a CC plus um, uh, device uh, which helps you develop XML web services. Uh, I found that the Wikipedia spot uh, entry described it the best. Basically, it's a C and C++ software development toolkit for SOAP XML web services and generic XML data bindings. So SOAP XML is just a simple way of, of transferring stuff so, and when I used it uh, between the mid-level tier and the back end. Um, I wrote the middle cheer for a website and the web browser would talk to me and say, hey, listen, can you get me this data for me? And I would go and get it from the database and it would almost always pull it back over a, a SOAP connection. And it, it was pretty good. Right. So this I, is like I, a I way liked it. Um, where you can take your like C or C++ data structures and then generate a way where you can easily serialize that to XML, send it over SOAP to something else, and then they can take that, turn it back into a data structure. It sort of um, keeps you away from the underlying data. Mm-hmm. Say if you're writing a PHP program and you'd say get get row from the database and it would pull the row back and it, it's probably in an array most likely. But this is a data abstraction and um, 
technique and by actually transmitting over the wire in XML via SOAP, you, you sort of keep it away from the underlying implementation, which could change at any time. Right. It's funny, like, um, you know, describing this, all right, well, we've got serialization here, we've got XML, we've got SOAP, things that are intended to be used over the web, and we've got mm-hmm. C and C++. This kind of, these are all making connections here for me, like this sounds ripe for a vulnerability. Um, not necessarily, it, not saying it's implied it, or anything, but uh, this is the kind of stuff we see a lot of. Anytime you get something really complex, right. you're you're running that risk. So what the actual vuln was, I did have it here and now I've lost it. Um, it, it winds up that it, once you connect to it, you can start sending it this two gig file. Or you just throw two gig of data. Then you come back about seven minutes later. If you watch the little video, um, can you see the video on the page? It's about... Oh, quarter of the way down, it's uh, a black box. If you run that video while while I talk, people can see that what actually happens is you find this camera, you exploit it, you send it a, a two gig file, and then you wait. You wait for it to process this two gig file, and then you come back, and the box is yours. It's as simple as that. Now, oh, that looks good. So when you go to the camera the first time, you can't use it. You can't see it. You can't get access to it because it's blocking you. So what do you do? You, you, you try the exploit, which winds up sending a huge file to it. Now, this seven minutes, I think, is actually rebooting time because it's rebooting, I think, into a new image. I think that's what they've done is they've uploaded a, a whole new image because I, I can't imagine that just um, – Sending it two gig of random data does this. There is an article. There is a link to the original um, work on the web in the show notes. And if you go there and read through it, you can see a lot more of what they did. But just basically all they've done is they've owned a small little device. Now, I'm sure these don't have... Huge flexibility, but they're they're running some some kind of lin. Um, I don't want to say it's a Linux kernel because I don't really know for but, sure. But likely that or a or a similar open source operating system, almost surely. Yep, they, it is a Linux kernel. I just fa- found a reference to it in the, in the original work. But basically, you, you you can own the box. There's a vulnerability in GSOP, and they w- wind up owning the box. Um. I'm sure it's not trivial to find out how to do this. They had a lot of time. One of the things they mentioned in their work is they're able to download a new image despite not being a customer, which that's not hard to do. You could buy, you could just buy one and become a customer. There's nothing preventing you from becoming a customer to, to get access to the image itself. So that's not really a deal. Um, this vulnerability highlights how supply chain code is shared across the Internet of Things. With IoT, code reuse is vulnerability reuse. I find that's a horrible line. Any any code that is shared amongst anything, if there's a vuln found in one, it's going to be vuln in all the other things. Yeah, so I really don't see 
it's kind of a, it, I mean, I guess there's like a, there's a balance, right? Like, like it, it's true in that, like similar ways, like we've talked a little bit on this program about how we don't want, you know, all of the, the root servers for the internet to be on one operating system. Like VeriSign's done a lot of work to, to avoid that sort of thing. Yes. But you also don't want to rely on really, you know, really niche projects that don't have a lot of eyes or don't have a lot of active development um, or any open source work because, well, it may be harder to make those vulnerabilities or whatever. Like yep. motivated parties will do that. And what really matters is like how fast can you actually get things patched and do you have the mechanisms and tool chain to update them? And to be fair, this is an open source project. Yes. They, they have the, the, this is available under a GPL license. But it's and like it's one they of those have trade-offs it, you have to make, right? And, yeah, and they don't really know how many people are using it, so mm. it could be more. The, the author of this article, not the author of the exploit article, is. I'm I'm trying to think of the right term of what they're doing. They're sort of over. Uh, they're trying to make it sound a lot worse than it is, and I think that's just the way that they write. Right. So. After the attack, they soon discovered that this exploit worked not only... Oh, sorry. Their work began last last month when they found a buffer overflow in the, in the firmware of a single security camera from Swedish camera maker Access Communi- Communications. Now, the way they're wording that, they said they, they got one, they got one. Then they found it worked on all 249 of the Access models that they had sure they all use the same software so of course um in a phone call with wired um and the gsoap creator robert van englian said 39 onvif companies use gsoap as paying customers but declined to say which ones and then they go into a, a discussion about, oh, it should only be the servers that are that are vulnerable to this. But um, then the, the the writer says that, well, the people that found the vuln said it both client and server are vulnerable. So, um, and now the last thing I take issue is they said using the internet scanning tool Shodan. Senrio found 14,700 of Access's cameras alone that were vulnerable to their attack. How do they know they're vulnerable? They're just assuming that if they're an Access camera, they're vulnerable? Or maybe maybe they compared that model to what was in there? It's just, it's odd wording that doesn't make it very clear as to what what they found what the, what the, what their conclusions is based on what they found what they found. I know I'm very I'm being very picky about this, but th- there are several statements that they've made in here which, which sort of it just doesn't ring exactly right. You, you know, sometimes when, when you want to say there is no truth to the rumor that so and so so and so and so and so this happened, it's a very long statement. Yes, definitely. Anyway, well, and so. it's—I mean—it's important. Like, as always, I mean, security is just a world of trade-offs, right? But we want to preserve the kind of like this is a big deal thing for things that are. I'm not saying this isn't a big deal, but you know, like we mm-hmm. we want 
we don't want people to be crying wolf and get people sick of security mm-hmm. news so that they're not concerned about patches. And so we want to, you know, the serious things we need to emphasize, the less serious things should still talk about as legitimate journalism and all of those things. But we yes. need to be careful to avoid hyperbole. And these devices do need to get patched. Right. But I'm sure thousands of them will not get patched ever. And it's not like, and this is not certainly not the first vulnerability in IP cameras or anything of that sort, right? Like, this is not yeah. new in that regard. Mm-hmm. But my question is, why are these things on the internet? Why are they accessible from the internet? Why are they not at least blocked or filtered so that you can only get them get to them from the places you need to get to them mm-hmm. from? Why are they not at least behind... Uh, um, a username password. Yeah. Or like, or, you know, they should, you'd think a lot of these companies too, like have resources where you can, not that I want my devices to do this, but for the people who don't understand VPNs or SSH or all those things, you think they could be phoning home to the, the people servers, yes. but not having an open port on your router or anything like that. Yeah. That, there's no reason for them to be publicly accessible like this. Yeah. None, none. Just, you shouldn't be accepting two gigs of random traffic over your over your firewall mm, to any mm, random mm, device mm, on your mm. LAN there. No, no, no. It's a bit like leaving your car keys outside the door. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, you just have that, that key hook that you have on the inside of the door. Just put that right, out, right and outside. And then lock the door. And then, then lock, lock the, door. the door. Yeah. Uh, exercise in so, yeah. futility. Yes. Well, this is unfortunate. Yes, it is. So does this have any ramifications? Do you know anyone who has these devices or heard any stories about this actually beyond proof of concept? I don't, but you just mentioning, do I know of anyone? I was talking to some people last weekend who who were affected by the, um, what was the, I can't remember the name, the, the, the bug that got out. Uh, it's not wanna cry. It's the one after wanna cry. The one we were talking about last week. Their offices have basically been shut down because of it. Wow, really? Yeah, and I've also heard rumors that it was specifically it was Russian. It was specifically targeted against Ukrainians, only Ukrainians. Right. But it escaped. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and people who had um, Kaspersky antivirus installed were immune. Really? Yes. These are the rumors I've heard. Interesting. These seem like rumors that will almost certainly come back up here on the TechSnap program. So, yeah, no, I don't know of anyone that um, is hit by this, but I'm sure it's too early for me to have heard already. Yeah. Anything else you want to add about um, no. G-Soap, no. XML, everyone go start using <laughs> JSON now? Anything? Yeah. Uh, awesome. Okay, well, if you're probably now, if you're like me, you're like, okay, well, I'm a little scared of all of my IoT things. The last thing that I need is another piece in my architecture or connection puzzles that I don't trust and that I can't understand I don't want that either. So that's why when I'm looking for a mobile service provider, I go right on over to our friends at Ting. That's techsnap.ting.com. It's a smarter way to do mobile. 
just wait until you find out. Actually, you're about to find out, so don't wait anymore. It's right now. The average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month. Yeah. What? Really? $23 is what it costs to, like, add a line when you're already paying $75 a month and you have a family plan with unlimited blah and tons of features you don't use and you're paying extra because you get four gigs of tethering and all of that horribleness. Not at Ting's, my friend. Not at Ting. So when you go to techsnap.ting.com, you will get a $25 service credit. That will probably pay for more than your first month if you're anything like me or their average average customer. If you want to understand a little bit more, you don't have to read a 50-page contract. No, you just go onto their rates page. Super simple, super easy. That is a theme you will notice at Ting, whether it's using their incredible UI, their awesome Android and iOS apps, or talking to a real live human being with their phone support, you'll be like, wow, this is different. This is real different. This is people who care. This is people who are trying to do something simple and serious and trying to make mobile make sense. They're not just trying to milk me for every dollar I, I, I have. They're not trying to get me in a position where I'm forced to choose between having enough without overages, but not really getting the value that I deserve. No, Ting does it differently because they're a reseller. They have both GSM and CDMA. So wherever you are, they've got the right, the right kind of service for you. They can focus on customer service, reliability, and ease of use. And these are things that this industry sorely needs. Instead of dealing, worrying about overage charges or early termination fees or extra tethering or how much all these fees are going to cost you or trying to plan your maximal usage for the next two years and buying the appropriate amount, no. Get modern, get hip, get ting, and just pay for what you use. If you look down here, lines start at just $6 a month, right? And then you just choose how many minutes you need, how many messages, and how many megabytes. And even if you're like me here and you're using some minutes and some messages, which I don't think is everyone. I mean, just my own theory here. But come on, how many people actually use minutes and messages? Not that many. Or if if you use all the data in the world, it doesn't matter because the prices are simple, they're easy to understand, and they start at super, super low. When lines are just $6 a month, it makes it so easy. You can have a backup phone, you can use it just for data, you can turn it on and forget it, or you can have one phone, you know, one SIM for CDMA, one SIM for GSM, and when you need to switch, you just switch, and for $6 a month, I mean, come on, that just makes sense. So when we live in a world of uncertainty where you can't keep track of what's happening, you need a simple wireless plan. Ting Ting does not get in your way. They don't load your phone with bloatware. They don't get in the way of your official updates from from Upstream. They're not interested in it. They don't add super cookies. They're not trying to track you or sell your information. It's just mobile that makes sense. So thank you to Ting. And you can say thank you too by going to techsnap.ting.com and finally getting mobile that makes sense. Thank you very much, dear friends at Ting. With that, we get to move on, and perhaps we go even beyond public key encryption. What else? What's what's next? We have uh, someone who works in cryptography talking about alternatives to public key encryption. In other words, instead of just using... Um, the public key encryption that everyone's been using for the past few years. Let's try something different. Um, And the interesting thing that he starts off with 
which wound up giving him quite a few negative comments was one of the saddest and most fascinating things about applied cryptography is how little cryptography we actually use. The vast majority of the cryptography we use was settled by the early 2000s. I think originally he said uh, 1995 or 1900 or something, sorry, 1990. but then people started to come back and saying, well, what about this and this and that? that? That's all come out recently. And he replied and said, well, no, actually, that came out earlier. And you're talking about uh, not public key in- encryption, but single key encryption, which is different. And he's just talking about, you know, private key, public key type stuff. That's That's specifically what this article is about. Now... The first thing he suggests is something that came out in the mid-80s, which is identity-based encryption. And you'd sort of think that what we have now is identity-based encryption because you've got your email address and the keys associated with the email address. But no, that's not what we have now. Basically, what he says is we get rid of public keys by using identity-based encryption. For example, imagine that I want to send you a PGP encrypted email. Before I can do this, I need to have a copy of your public key. How do you get it? A lot of people who use um, PGP are used to key signing parties where everyone turns up with ID and their email address and little slips of paper with a key fingerprint on it. And you go through a process of confirming that the person who says that they are Dan Langell uses this email address, and they use this public key. Mm -hmm. Now, some people say, well, why use... For some of these parties, you wind up using government-issued ID. And some people say, well, no, it doesn't matter using government-issued ID because it only matters if you're the person that everyone knows as being Der Mouse, and that's your public key. That's all that matters doesn't matter who you actually are. It just matters that if you're emailing Dermos that it gets... You're just trying to have that consistency where you're like, well, I met this person and they gave me this key and I don't know what their real name is, but I know that this is the key that they gave me and Mm -hmm. these things match up. Maybe it's useful to give like a Mm -hmm. quick... I'm sure most of our audience knows, but like a quick review of public public key cryptography versus like symmetric key. Yeah. Um, So symmetric key is basically what you do say with with gzip when you zip it up with a password you you use the same password to encrypt it as you use to decrypt it and that's just one key but with public key encryption you have two keys Um, you have a private one which you keep only for yourself and that's used for decryption and you have a public one which other people use to encrypt stuff that you're going to decrypt with your private key. And the, the problem with single key encryption is it's only good if, if you never have to share it. If you have to share it with someone else, then now it's no longer a secret. So you can't really use it for anything except for stuff that right. Anytime you, you want, to want to encrypt. Anytime you want a new key, like, yeah, there's no way to easily distribute it. There's no, like, all right, yeah. we'll have to go carefully give everyone my copy of the key, and then they can yeah. decrypt whatever I get, too. Mm-hmm. So, with public key encryption, it sort of solves that that threat vector of where if you keep your private key private and contained, no one can decrypt your messages. So, 
the problem with PKI is that that initial pu- public key interchange. I think that's what PKI is. But PKI is the mechanisms that a lot of people put into place in order to distribute public keys. Um, it's still a problem finding the right key that you want to send to someone because first you have to identify who they are and what key they use. So this alternative, which was an identity-based cryptography, their idea required a bit more finesse. Rather than expecting identities to be global, he proposed a special server called a key generation authority that would be responsible for generating the private keys. At setup time, this authority would generate a single master public key, which it would publish to the world. Now, I'm offhand that doesn't sound right to me, because someone else has your private key. And yeah, that's exactly what this is. The design has some important advantages and a few obvious drawbacks. On the plus side, it removes the need for any key exchange at all. Once you've chosen a master key authority and downloaded its MPK, you can encrypt to anyone in the entire world, even cooler. At the time you encrypt, your recipient doesn't even need to have contacted the key authority yet. She can obtain her secret key after I've sent her a message. Of course, this feature also has a bug. Because the key authority generates all the secret keys, it has an awful lot of power. A dishonest authority could easily generate your secret key and decrypt your messages. The polite way to say this is that standard IBAE, identity-based encryption systems, effectively bake in key escrow. So, in effect, this is the back door. All the public, all the private keys are actually held by one central authority. Break into that authority, you get through everything. It's very similar to a certificate authority, where they've signed everyone's certificates. Yeah, totally. To say, hey, listen, this certificate is good. You can use it. Right. So, I mean, like you, you can get really caught up in all the details and stuff, but really, it is like it ends up being about like who's got the the trusted root secret that we're all relying yep. on here to make this work. Yep. And with public key encryption, generally, you're not sending stuff to a lot of people. It's not thousands and millions of people you're sending to. There are a few exceptions, but generally, people don't email that many people that they need to have something encrypted. Right, yeah, that's... For uh, thousands and thousands of different people. Generally true, and I think, to that point, like a lot of the systems we have are not necessarily optimized for that use case. Um, it does beg the question of, like, you know, is that something that we want? Like, do we want this kind of thing to be able to be commonplace enough that you can, you could start, you know, things like Keybase or other systems where, hey, are there options here where we could start, you know, all of our messages could be encrypted, but it takes, it takes that uh, PKI or similar setups that you're talking about. Yeah. Just based on this alone, I can't see it taking off. I can't see people trusting it any more than existing PKI. Right. I don't think I don't think that the advantage of being able to send some someone something before you get in touch with them is all that useful. I mean, sure, there's there's the identity problem, but generally, if you're going to encrypt something, you go to the company's web page and look for their public key that's on their website because 
generally you're reporting a problem or something like that. It does. Know. It does ask that point, right? Of like, unless you're trying to push for large changes in the way that we interface with encryption, like it is already possible for people, you know, concerned citizens, leakers, other things. Like, if you need to send a communication, public key encryption does exist. You can use it. It can be difficult to use or unintuitive to use. Um, but it'd be interesting to hear more about like that. Why is that the problem, or is this exactly mm. what they're trying to solve? Well, I, I find my P. PKG interface fairly good. I just uh, I just generate the key. I can't I can't even remember if I generated the key from the command line or not. I must have. But using it in my mail client is very straightforward. Generating it and distributing it is a slightly different though. Mm, yeah. So back to the article. So so far it was identified. Uh, Identity-based encryption. Then we get down to something called attribute-based encryption. And there's more on IBE above. I'm skipping over that. Um, So what's attribute-based encryption? It is not to encrypt with attributes, such as taking a retinal scan and using that to encrypt with. And the reason that's not – the reason the biometric – uh, attributes are not a good thing to encrypt with is because you can scan the same fingerprint, you can scan the same iris n times, and so long as it's close enough, it'll unlock your cell phone. But it's never the same exact value every time because the angles are slightly different. You just you're sort of looking for common points, but it, it's not always exact. So basically, if the encryption identity differs from your key identity by even a single bit, and that's sort of um, scanning and converting to a digital form every time you need to scan, it's not going to work very well. But that's encryption. How they use it for identity is a different thing. Um, You just sort of scan it and say, yeah, that's fairly close to the value I have on file. Or you look for a few key points. Like um, when, when you're actually scanning your thumbprint for iPhone, you have to take many different thumbprints, different angles, and keep pressing and reading and pressing and reading. And what it does is collecting a whole bunch of data points. And each time you take that reading, it's not the same set of data points. And they collect them all together into, say, this amount of data. But when you actually go and take a single thumbprint, It'll be this amount of data, which is slightly less. And so long as a few, enough of the data points match up exactly, they'll say, yeah, it's a pretty good chance that that's, that's probably you. Cell phone. Yeah. But you can't use the results of that for encryption because you don't know what you're comparing to. Right. You have because no if you, master if reference. If you're storing there. all the attributes away, yeah, hmm. I think a I think a better idea is you still have to store something away. What what they're trying to do with this is never storing the public key somewhere. Just here, take my thumbprint, encrypt with that. I think that's what he's getting at where if a single um, bit is off, the encryption won't work. The decryption won't work. That's right. what they're getting at. So you can't use straight biometric data for decryption. Or for a, a private key, you can't do that because you're not always going to get the same value at. So anyway, so back to what we're talking about. Uh, you know, 
once you get over a certain threshold for the number of data points, you declare that's a match. So what we're getting at here is you can start using this um, concept of attributes so the, and a threshold gate. So you can start implementing Boolean ands and ors. Like if attribute A or attribute B and attribute C, you can decide, okay, that matches. We're going to do this. But then you can stack those gates on top of each other to get something very complex. And so it, it then becomes a way of encrypting data. And it's easiest to, to, to just re, to, for me just to read this. The other direction could be implemented as well. It's possible to encrypt a cybertext under a long list of attributes, such as creation time, file name, and even GPS coordinates indicating where the file was created. You can then have the authority hand out keys that correspond to a very precise slice of your data set. For example, this key decrypts any radiology file encrypted in Chicago between December 3rd and December, November 3rd and December 12th that is tagged with pediatrics or oncology. And that in itself is pretty cool. This attribute-based encryption, being able to do that and say, take all these attributes, create a key, you can encrypt it with that key, and here's a key you use to decrypt it. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I can already imagine a ton of use cases, uh, you know, for that kind of thing where your security model in some ways is is baked right into the system already. I want to I want to look at all the data that pertains to me. Right. In the system. Yeah, maybe so, this is a okay. way where you can expose large data mm-hmm. sets but allow mm-hmm. researchers access to only the stuff and information they need but preserving mm-hmm. the whole data set without a whole lot, whole lot of copying all around. Mhm. Hmm. Yep. So the interesting, I like what the guy says here. What's the point of all this? For me, the point is just to show that cryptography can do some pretty amazing things. We rarely see this on a day-to-day basis when it comes to industry and applied cryptography, but it's all waiting to be used. Perhaps a perfect application is out there. Maybe you'll find it, period. But he, he's given us a couple of ideas, but I don't see anything here that's going to replace public key yet. Maybe in one of his future blog posts, because he says he's going to do several of these. But I didn't see anything in here that, that as of yet, will get rid of public key encryption. Right. Not at all. The IBE, I can't see that taking off. It is certainly interesting, though. I thought this was a, a great review, and I think there is some wisdom in that like what you just what you just said, basically, that, you know, a lot of times in industry or practical solutions, you end up kind of, there's little periods where you kind of get stuck, right? Where you have like the state of the art, that's what we've been using, that's what exists, no one's really mm-hmm. pushed that boundary too far. But academia kind of just keeps going, and there's oftentimes a lot of like, good ideas, sometimes even decades old, that just haven't yet seen the right implementation or an efficient implementation or a user-friendly implementation, you know, so there's like a lot of ideas. I really encourage this idea of, you know, of kind of bridging those two worlds together and making sure we're, we're trying to develop the future together. And there's also the idea that um, there may be a discovery out there. We just haven't realized the great application we can put it to yet. Yeah, right. Exactly. 
it just has to be learned by the right person who puts it together with something else and says, oh, this, this here, we can problem. do this. Yes. Yeah, like so often has happened in, in, in math and, and physics and science in general. Mm-hmm. That, you know, oh, this is a this is a neat solution. Uh, it turns out it works for this too. Mm-hmm. It really underlies it the the point of you know why we should why we should fund and encourage peer research even without necessarily a direct aim to any sort of commerce or product. Yep. Awesome. Okay. Well, well this is a great who, review. Who was it? Edison or? Tesla was asked what use is electricity oh I don't know this quote one, one of them when they were doing early re- research on, on it they were they were asked you know what use is it and they didn't know yet but. right how could you but you're like it sure is fun to play with and it turns out now it runs the whole freaking world Okay, well, yep. thank you for that fascinating review. I mean, I think I'm excited to see some of these future blog posts. Um, I mean, obviously, we're just interested in cryptography in general. Um, but I think especially now in today's um, political climate, that's not really a, the right phrase, but yes, personal freedoms and liberties and privacy are very important, and we need robust public open source cryptography to be able to mm-hmm. protect us and let us live you know, the, the lives that we that we're entitled to the way in which we become accustomed exactly so you're probably accustomed to that and you're probably like wow i really do take my cryptography seriously if that's the case you probably take just about everything seriously and you are not going to be satisfied with a run-of-the-mill server no 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 that's why you need to head on over to ixsystems.com if you head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap you'll find the definitive guide to buying hardware for open source software. And you may be like, Wes, what are you talking about? Like, why do I need to know about hardware? I already got the software. I know how to run the software. I just need a server. Make it x86. I'll put it on there. I know all about Linux or FreeBSD or whatever. I got this. And you know what? You might be right. Maybe, maybe you do. But if you're a developer or even an admin, multi-talented person that I'm sure you are, all of us can use some help sometimes. And when you're really trying to make your next business succeed or your next project, or just make sure you're right making the right choice, it can be it can pay off to have friends in the right places. And you have those friends. Oh yeah, at IX Systems. They've got world-class sales engineers ready to give you full white glove service. They understand that your next project or business or startup is important. And that you have a lot riding on this. You don't need lackluster hardware. You don't need second-class support. No. And you don't deserve it either. IX Systems understands that you want to buy awesome hardware powered by incredible Intel processors. And they've got great partnerships with companies like Intel and others to make sure that they've got all the latest equipment and they know how it works. They've got experience with big companies. People like Mozilla, Adobe, VMware, NOAA, large government agencies, NASA, large universities, they have petabytes, petabytes. Their customers have petabytes of storage. I doubt you're going to come close. But if you are, this is the first place you should look because where else are you going to find people with this experience? And they're not trying to peddle you their proprietary stack where you have to buy their appliance that only runs their software. No, they understand that you want to run open source software, that you have your own software that you want to run, and they are your willing partner to help enable that. And, you know, in that guise, 
they're like a huge member of the community. Wherever you go, Linux, open source, FreeBSD conferences, all these things, you'll see iX systems because they've been here. They've been here through dot-com bubbles and bursts. They know, you know, they've really been here like for most of the life of the internet. They get how it works and they're here to help. So whether you need something for your home office, small office, which obviously I'm just going to say, just get the free NAS Mini. Just do it. You won't regret it. So reliable. It just works. Easy peasy. It does everything you want. Perfect NAS for you. Or you're like, Wes, come on. Like I have bigger needs than that. Come on, man. Check out the true NAS. This is a really enterprise ready. Whatever you need to scale out to, they're prepared to handle it, especially with systems like the true rack. And you might be like, okay, well, maybe I don't need just storage. I need to buy some servers. I'm just going to go pick up, you know, whatever's on sale. That's fine. Yeah, that works. But when you end up in a situation where you got a lemon from the factory and they've replaced the RAM and they've replaced the CPU and they've replaced the motherboard and they've replaced this and that and they still won't replace the whole darn thing and your server still won't work, you'll be like, why did I go with this company? No, go with iX Systems. You'll get first class support, white glove support. Everything will be installed, ready to go, shipped to your data center, plugged into the rack, turned right on, boots up, joins your fleet, and it's done. You don't have to worry. They've done burn-in testing. They've done all the kind of things. They have the knowledge to make it work. So don't waste any more time. Head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and go buy the server of your dreams. And thank you to iX for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So that brings us to just about the end but not quite of our main segment today looks like you've got something new over there dan there's always something up your sleeve what is it today i I, I do i do um last week i talked about these two little uh scripts that i was writing collect certs and yeah right and just move certs around i forget the actual name of the two of them but um, I I wound up thinking on Friday that I should pull it all into one one tool because they are basically the same. And what I decided to do on the weekend because I was away for the weekend, uh, Kathy had a conference downtown, so she and I um, just stayed downtown, stayed in a hotel overnight, and. Saturday, Friday night went out. Fr- Saturday morning, she got up, went to the conference. I stayed in the hotel room with a great view of Fairmont Park and the Art Museum. TV right here. I watched the Tour de France all morning. Uh, and I coded away to make this new software project called Anvil. And Anvil basically has two parts to it, a cert puller and a cert sif- shifter. The cert shifter basically takes well there's a nice little diagram in there let me look at oh, it yeah. um there are two part i remember saying a while back how i was going to do this centralized um let's encrypt solution so basically we have a search jail here and um this diagram was done with uh, microsoft powerpoint and we won't say tool. a thing don't it worry was the only, it was the only tool i had on the dead so Basically, you create a certi- I created a certificate jail, and that, that runs the Acme.sh script. And that's the one that actually do- does all the, the gaining of the certificates. And so basically, you have a directory there that has, contains all the, all the certificates for DB Acme certs. 
that's where all the certificates along with all the keys are. So how do I get that stuff out? I didn't want my websites linking into this jail and saying, here, give me my right. cert, because if anyone takes over the website, they're, they're into that jail as well. So what I decided to do was move everything from there to a website on another location. And the way I decided to do that was a two-step process. Um, I've got uh, some, I've got a, the cert shifter will copy only the certificates over to another directory. That directory is nullfs mounted in another jail, which I call the rsync jail. And it's from that jail that the website connects and down, downloads the certificates and only the certificates. And it cannot change those certificates. So so if anyone was to gain access to this rsync jail, which would be very difficult because they need the right public key, they need to be coming from the right host name, they need to have the right IP address. So they need all that to get in there. Plus they need to be on my VPN because this is all over a VPN. Then they copy it. Then it winds up being copied to the website jail, which is a publicly accessible website. Anyone can get there. But all you're going to see is public key certificates. So it doesn't really matter. You've got the public public part of the certificate. You don't have the key. So it's of no use to you. Right. So then what happens is I wrote both these scripts are shell scripts. And written in Born shell, not that other shell that some people think is a shell scripting language. So cert puller gets installed on, on all the clients. And all, what you do is you fill in three pieces of information there. Where am I going to get these certificates from? That's the website name. What's the name of the certificate I'm going to pull down? And what services am I going to restart? You do that. Um, the script uses sudo in order to move things around. So you're not running this script as root. You're running it as any non-privileged user that you choose. Um, after you set up the configuration file, you can say, hey, cert puller, tell me what sudo commands I need for this. Because you can have uh, several different services that are going to be restarted. You can have um, several different um, certificates that you're going to download. So there might be a number of uh, sudo commands that are needed. Uh, it'll output the sudo commands. You copy and paste them into v vi sudo. Then you set up the cron tab to run as often as you want. I run it daily. And once the script runs, it's going to download the certs. It's going to say, hey, are these the same certs as we had last time? Oh, no, they're different. Let's copy them in and let's restart the services that we need to restart. And right now I have this deployed to about 24 sites and they all wow. seem to be working well except I have to test it with a real um, with a real renewal not just a forced renewal I have to get to that soon oh I see yeah and yeah and so far it uh, I threw it up on um, github I created a FreeBSD port, and it's installed. E even at home, I've got it installed, so I don't have to update certificates here. Um, and, yeah, hopefully people will find it useful. I know I have so far. And e even just in getting certificates in, in I've, been, 
I've been delaying renewing certificates just to get this going. Um, And the biggest problem I have with it is time. Yeah. And I just happen to have time on Saturday and Sunday to do this. I love that. Like sometimes it's unexpected, but you just find that time where you're like, there's nothing happening right now. Like I can just, I can just work on this without guilt. I can, I'm just going to keep hacking or you start Mm -hmm. it and you're like, well, I was going to go do those other things, but I'm just going to keep working on this. So yep. does the uh, rsync component sync all the certs to each website, or does each website get just the cert for itself? The website is public. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's not every site that has this. All the clients go to the same website. Ah, oh, that that makes sense. Okay. Okay. So you could have multiple. You could have multiple rsync jails, I guess. But no, the 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 copy into the rsync jail copies all the certs over. Nice. And what happens, though, is the client only downloads the cert it needs. Right. Which, but I mean, doesn't web- matter too much anyway because yeah. they're public certs yeah. anyway. And the website jail has all the certs, yeah. Awesome. Okay. I like this system a lot. I'm kind of interested in making um, like a, a Linux variant of it, maybe. We'll have to do some coding for that. Yeah, totally. But, I mean, I think all the... I like all the principles and, yeah, some of the implementation, you know bind of bind instead of nullfs and blah 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 all those things but i this is awesome and it provides a really nice way i think it's a good highlight of like separation of concerns and some of the primitives that you can need so that you can you know this works over here i keep these things private mm-hmm. we only expose what we need to that's awesome and i love that you you said it was already like packaged up in ports yeah because oh. i don't want to have a <laughs> I'm using it on my system. Yeah, right, you so want to be able to uninstall it in yeah. an insane way, totally. Yeah, and it also creates a user called Anvil. Okay. Have you figured out why it's called Anvil? Ooh, you know, I didn't even think about that. Why is it called Anvil? Because it works with Acme. That's beautiful. I like that. That's perfect. And if you go to the Wikipedia Acme page, one of the first things you see for sale is an Anvil. Is that right? Acme Corporation. Ah, American rot handles. Yeah. A fine product it, indeed. It, it it all stems from uh, the Roadrunner ads. The Roadrunner um, cartoons. Because Wiley Coyote would always get things delivered from Acme Corporation, which which is a myth is a made up company. Or was a made up company. That's beautiful. I love it. They ring like a bell. Well, thank you very much for sharing this project. Anything else you want to add about it? I'll definitely give it a shot on the few uh, FreeBSD systems I have and then take a look and send see, it. see what it would look like to port it over. Send in bug reports. Always good advice. Well, if you're like Dan and myself and you're like, oh, man, Let's Encrypt is the best thing ever. Let me oh go SSL all the things. There's really no better place to get started if you need a publicly accessible you know internet host than our final sponsor tonight which is of course our friends at digitalocean.com head on over to digitalocean.com there you'll find cloud computing they say designed for developers and it is i mean it is totally designed for developers but really it's designed for right-minded individuals across the world. And what do I mean by that? I mean people that don't want convoluted APIs, that don't want to waste time waiting minutes, tens of minutes, hours for new things to be spun up, that just want simple, easy, and reliable. And that is what you'll find over 
at DigitalOcean.com. So if you use our promo code, SNAPOcean, all one word, lowercase, SNAPOcean, that'll get you started with a $10 credit. Wait till I tell you that prices start at just $5 a month. What? Yes, that's right. $5 a month. And for that, you get a pretty sweet deal. That's only $0.007 per hour. Yeah, uh-huh, kind of crazy. But you get a whole 512 MB of memory, one virtual CPU, 20 gigs of all SSD disk, and a whole whopping terabyte of transfer. One of DigitalOcean's best things that they really got right is those fun dementals. They use real KVM virtualization. So this is real virtualization here. It's not OpenVZ. It's not some sort of container. It's an actual virtual machine. That means you can run, you know, all kinds of operations. Even if they don't support it, you can get stuff like OpenBSD, Arch Linux, DigitalOcean's Honey Badger about that because they just it just works because they provide you the right fundamentals. That includes SSDs. They've been SSD pretty much since the beginning. That's what they do best. They get that. They provide you awesome storage, whether that's the storage that comes with your droplet or their attachable block storage. Plus, they're working on object storage right now, which I bet you is backed by SSDs. I'm just waiting to hear about my beta invite for that. Then I'll let you know more about those. Plus, they've got simple, simple pricing. This isn't like some of the competitors where you're like, well, how much is this going to cost me again? And oh, but what if it's reserved or not? And no, it's just what you see is what you pay. And it's so easy. So it's $5 a month. Maybe you want to splurge. You're going to go with, well, I can spend a little bit. What do you get with $20 a month? Two gigs of memory, two CPUs, 40 gigs of disk, and three terabytes of transfer. And that's like 40 gigabit e-transfer. I'm not talking like uh, dial up here. No, this is real transfer, real bandwidth that you can use for whatever you want. And it's awesome. They've got great peering. Tons of times I've been on ISPs that I won't name where I'm trying to download something for Europe or make a connection to a friend across the globe, and it's just not happening. And it's not that I don't have enough bandwidth. It's not that my connection's terrible. It's just that upstream, the peering that these ISPs have isn't very good, or they don't have the good connections. A little bit of proxying to a DigitalOcean droplet near you can solve all those problems. And they've got data centers all over the world. Frankfurt, Singapore, Amsterdam, Toronto, New York, San Francisco pretty much wherever you want and they're opening more all the freaking time go check out their social media you'll see how beautiful immaculate and pristine these places are they do a great job caring for them and i think it shows plus you get their incredible api their awesome community documentation where they hire real editors to take community submissions and turn it into world-class documentation that is quickly becoming one of the premier places to go for linux and open source tips tricks and how to's plus their API is so easy to use. They dog food it. Their UI built on the API. Their apps built on the API. Our apps here, JB, built on the API. That's why it's so simple and it just works. And they're rolling out all kinds of features. Things like monitoring, load balancing, object storage, high CPU droplets, attachable block storage. That one's not so new anymore, but it was new. And these are all features that their competitors have, but DigitalOcean rolls them out in their own unique, simple, easy way. So don't waste any more time. If you just need an extra CPU, you want a box to play around, or you're starting your next startup and you're looking for a cloud hosting provider, choose DigitalOcean and get started with our promo code SNAPOcean. So thank you very much, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring us here at the TechSnap program. And you all go try it out with promo code SNAPOcean. 
that brings us to the feedback segment, the time in the show where we take time to kind of, sort of, speak with you guys, our favorite audience. There's numerous ways to provide feedback, and when you do, we like to highlight it here on the show. So, let's see. What do we got first today, Mr. Dan? There's always something good in the mailbag. Looks like... Oh, yeah, please go on. This came off on Twitter. Um, Jed Reynolds told us that arm and risk systems are not readily sold. Well... I know. I think they're becoming more popular. They're not. They're not as widely distributed as Intel and AMD. That's for sure. But he's saying that they have a very compelling AESNI and virtual instructions in PCIe. Now, the only thing I've heard of AE, AESNI for lately is uh, in, encryption. I think the latest version of PFSense or, or soon PFSense will require. You're running on uh, on a chip that has that. Oh, interesting! I did not realize that, but it kind of makes sense. You want a good have be able to have good you know encryption offload etc. Yeah, um, so I may have to get a new chip soon. So I got to say, I, I just got to this is from uh, from Jed Reynolds. I got to meet him at Linux Fest Northwest this did past you? year. Yeah, he's an, he's a wonderful person, longtime uh, contributor there and and fan of the network. Um, I think where he's coming from, it, it really sounds like a you know on the server and particular workloads case where i mean i think he does have a point in that you know we've heavily even if these architectures aren't ideal for many reasons we have spent a lot of time a lot of man hours trying to optimize them and get these sorts of things so we have you know virtualization is now a huge thing and it's very efficient we've got these kinds of you know virtualized instructions support for this in the processor as well as things like encryption offload with aes and i and it would be hard if you depended on one of those things to have a new chipset new architecture that didn't have those readily available, especially if it's already not quite as performant as, uh, you know, x86. Yeah. Um, it would be a problem changing. But I do wonder, so the AES and I one is a little harder to, I mean, you just might have to think about how you do it. Maybe you can get systems on a chip that have support for that already, even if it's not actually in, you know, in your actual main processor. I'm not sure. Um, for the virtualization, I wonder in a world where you know, containers, jails, etc., are really kind of exploding. Maybe that's less relevant as the future goes on, or not. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't build a you might not build a big virtualization server on an ARM platform right now, but you certainly could use it to deploy a bunch of Docker containers or jails that you ran uh, on on FreeBSD that you could get these systems for cheap. They didn't necessarily need to be super high performance. I think that's where a lot of it's coming from. Is like a people are interested in you know with risk and thing risk five, especially like they're just in free architectures or open source architectures, things they can hack on, things that aren't controlled and locked up in crazy numbers of patents. Uh, and then also seeing some companies like Scaleway and other and others that are exploring. And sometimes you don't need super throughput, super bandwidth, or the utmost performance, but you need something a little bit different on the, like, price or power performance spectrum. So I agree that, like, I don't think for a lot of people, especially people who are doing it for business or other reasons, like, there's probably not a lot to get you to jump ship right now if you're not already Mm -hmm. interested in that technology, but I still think it's something to watch. And thank you to Jed for Uh, providing this feedback. Uh, I'm still a fan of risk, even though it doesn't have that on. I don't have any risk boxes, but... Totally. I'm excited to see how uh, see how things develop. Okay, so moving on. Thank you again, Jed. That's awesome. Please keep uh, contributing feedback. We love it here at the TechSnap program. Now let's turn to our friend Gordon, who's writing about hosting your own mail server. I just finished listening to episode 327, 
And after hearing your feedback comments about secure mail servers, I thought I would share what I have done towards de-Googleizing my life. I think that's a goal that a lot of people here and a lot of JB viewers can identify with. Not that everyone has a problem with Google, but they certainly get their, you know, their their reach is very broad. Uh, and a lot of people are interested in not having that in every corner of their life. But there's not always easy ways, especially if you use a smartphone or other systems or their email or any of their platform. It's hard. It can be hard to get away from. So going on. For my children's sake, to reduce their public footprint, I decided to host my own mail server. I wanted a drop-in replacement for Gmail with calendaring and mobile phone support planned, and I planned to use Dovecot and Roundcube, Stan also mentioned in the episode. I then stumbled across Neth Server as an all-in-one general server solution. This system offers easy one-click installation of many server applications running on top of CentOS. After the initial installation, I was able to get Dovecot, Roundcube, Spam Filtering, and Nextcloud up and running in a matter of minutes, all with Let's Encrypt SSL. A common user directory makes accessing all of the applications super simple. The server will also act as a network gateway firewall, but I choose to sit mine behind a PFSense box. After testing, I ended up using the SoGo groupware application rather than Roundcube for webmail, calendaring and contacts, as it also has seamless active sync integration for mobile phones. That can be a big deal if you do anything with Outlook or other similar applications. The active Net server community is very friendly with regular security and feature updates. Hope this may have be of some interest to any listeners looking for a simple one-stop solution. Gordon. Well, thank you, Gordon. That's great. Neth server is something that I actually have not played with at all, but I, I you know, I, I think I saw it a couple months ago for the first time, and I was like, wow, this looks like a really interesting solution. What do you think, Dan? I want it to run on more than CentOS. <laughs> yeah, well, of course you do. But I think that's um, fair. Yeah, I'm, I don't I don't know if they have it tied to that. He mentioned CentOS, but looking looking at their front page of their website, I didn't see any big mention of CentOS. Oh, there it is. Based on CentOS, Red Hat, Linux Enterprise. Okay. So, yeah, they do mention it that. It's, it's going to help a lot of people. I mean, some people need exactly that. That they don't want to get into the sysadmin side of it, and so this is what they need. It's sort of like webmin, but for mail. Yeah, definitely. This is it's kind of it's kind of interesting. I mean, they've got like look at their learn more page. There's lots of stuff they can do: web filter, mail server, file server, VPN, groupware, mm. private cloud. There's a mm. lot of options here. Hundred percent open source, powered by contributors, and fueled by community so as always like you know it's different if you're deploying this for other people versus just your family or not but this looks like an awesome way to get started especially if you kind of understand what you need but you don't not everyone wants to go spend a whole weekend on the command line trying to get all of these pieces to work together in a reliable way exactly Uh, and we have to remember that most of us here are not normal (laughs) We, we we do a lot of stuff that the average person does not do um, they, uh, they have a Docker um, module you can download that has everything already installed. Oh yeah, look at that! That's awesome. It makes On it really demo easy page. to get. Uh... Oh yeah, username. Do they do they have a? Let's see. Do they provide credentials for this here demo? Yeah, they do. Uh, I missed those, didn't I? 
Yeah, it's um, root. The user is root, and the password is nathesis1234, comma, 1234. Yeah, say that five times fast. Nathesis, nathesis. Nope. You say it was root? Uh, yeah, you log in as root. Oh, there we go. Ah, beautiful. Look at that. Uh, I can't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this looks pretty cool, actually. I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot going on. We get some graphs, Samba audit, kind of up all up page, IPsec tunnels, open VPN right there. There's really a lot you could do with this system. It might be something to check out or, you know, for the casual admin, as you were talking about. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Gordon. That's a, that's a great piece of feedback. If anyone else is familiar with the Neth server or similar all-in-one kind of solutions, let us know. It's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Okay, so up next. Oh. Nope. Would you like to say Go ahead. something else? Go ahead. No, no. I just closed one too many windows. I'm fine now. Uh-oh. Well, while you're fixing that, from an unspecified author, we've got something about pixie booting. Thanks to Dan's Ye- suggestion. Oh, go on. Go, go ahead. I'll, I'll look up who it was. I failed to fill that in. Uh, you go ahead. Okay, so it wasn't redacted. It was just missing. No, no. I haven't filled it in. Thanks to Dan's suggestion, from one of the previous shows, I am now using LibreNMS in production for monitoring and graphing my servers. Much easier to set up than Nagios. Thanks, Dan! I have a question for this episode. What do you guys use for pixie booting from a network? I constantly install Linux and BSD distros, and I use either USB drives or virtual CD-ROMs. With a USB drive, every time I get a new version of an ISO, I have to manually copy to all my boot media... I would like to go to the next level and keep all my new ISOs at one place and just boot from the network. It would be great if I could have a menu on boot and just select what ISO I want to boot. A custom DHCP solution, I guess, is needed for this. Keep up the great work. ZFS rules. Heck, yes, it does. I, I, I have an answer, but it's it's not Pixie Boot. Okay. It's called a Zolman. Oh, he mentions that, actually. Yeah. No, no. Does he? I do. Oh, no. he mentions oh. it too, but... Vir- virtual CD-ROM? Did he mention Zalman? Z-A-L-M-A-N? Yeah. Really? Did he? I'm impressed. Look at him. You guys are on the same page. So tell us more about Zalman. Okay, so, never mind. I'll, t- I'll t- tell you what, what he's talking about. Basically, this this is a Zalman. It um, looks like an external... Uh, case for a 2.5 inch laptop drive uh, it comes a nice leather wallet and you have a USB 3 cable that you attach to it uh, the very interesting thing that comes with this is that it has a uh, and uh, I need power to do this it has a little window here oh. when you power this up you get a boot menu and you get to select whichever ISO image you want in here that's awesome. So basically, you put all your ISO images on here, each in a different directory under a given directory, and then you toggle through the list, select the one you want, and then that gets presented to the OS you've plugged into as as a CD-ROM. So this 2.5-inch laptop drive appears as a CD-ROM over a USB 3. That is super snazzy. And it is very cool. 
and it's self-powered. So it powers itself off the machine you're booting. So it's just one device, one cable. And it is very cool. But I, I can see the use case for wanting to go to a Pixie boot. And I've never Pixie booted. Have you? Oh, yeah, definitely. All right. So maybe you're better suited to answer his question than I am. Because I've never done that. Really? Perhaps never Pixie booted. That's funny. I've... I think I've pix- I pixie booted Windows. I've definitely pix- pixie booted Mac many years ago, uh, as well as as of course Linux. So there's a lot of, I mean, I suppose there's a lot of options. At, at its base, you basically need a DHCP server that can specify the pixie boot options and a TFTP server, or some clients can do it over HTTP, uh, so that you can download everything. Then it gets into the issues of like, how do you want to manage that? So it kind of depends on mm-hmm. what you're doing. I'd end up doing a lot of Chef, but are Ansible. Like you could probably have something where you, you know, update a recipe or a playbook that synchronizes or a shared, whether that be an S3 bucket or rsync or a NAS share where you upload your ISOs and then make that available to your TFTP server. Um, so there's some sort of roll your own options there. Uh, one thing I will mention is iPixie. I think it used to be called Etherboot or GPixie. Uh, mm-hmm. But iPixie is the leading open-source network boot firmware. It provides a full Pixie implementation enhanced with additional features such as boot from a web server via HTTP, boot from iSCSI SAN, fiber channel, wireless, all sorts of stuff. So this is something you can stick on a USB drive or similar and use it there. Or they even have the option of flashing it on your network card, replacing the existing uh, Pixie ROM. So that's pretty neat. I've seen some like Arch Linux provides a pre-built image of these that you can chain load from Grub that will then go fetch from their servers and download the latest install CD so you can boot right into it. Uh, so this can be one option if you need to, if your bootloader or um, devices don't have a ROM that's sufficiently advanced for you. So do you install this on each machine that you're Pixie booting? That's one option. Um, or you can have it already as an option or CD or USB drive, um, or chain load it from an existing bootloader. Okay. Uh, the other thing I will mention beyond just like things like um, Sys, the Sys Linux project has a bootloader, uh, PXE Linux, which can boot a bunch of Linux distributions over Pixie. Uh, the other thing I've seen a lot of people do is use Cobbler. Let's see. Yeah. Let's see if I can find a link here. Cobbler. Yeah. So about. This is not actually a good page. Anyway, Cobbler's like a system. We use it at the office sometimes, but it's a it's a system to kind of manage all this stuff. I think it primarily ends up being used with the Red Hat systems, but I don't think it's actually restricted to that. And so you can yeah. use this to set up images, set up post-boot scripts, first boot scripts, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Could, it'll actually go serve I'm, Pixie images. I'm familiar with the concept where basically you tie into DHCP and you say, hey, listen, when this MAC address shows up, do this special thing. Yes. Is that basically how, yeah. Yeah, and then you get options that says like, hey, your next path, next boot thing is this, go fetch this Mm -hmm. file. A lot of times you Mm -hmm. end up loading some sort of image thing, then does the rest. It is neat though. I mean, uh, it can be super handy. I usually have something ready to Pixie boot on my network um, just for, for, friends or whoever else like you know you can keep a a linux cd and a windows cd there and then all they have to do is plug in ethernet reboot their laptop and then you can troubleshoot or reinstall their os for them no problem 
Um, Goran's in the channel. He's the guy that suggested this. Oh, really? Goran J. Yeah. Awesome. Thank yeah. you so much, Goran. That's awesome. I really appreciate uh, appreciate the question. Yeah. And Colonel Panic is mentioning iPixie as well. Oh, yeah. And netboot.xyz is a great reference as well there, uh, which is basically a bunch of support with I, iPixie. Huh so that you can select a a bunch of pre-built OSs right from the get-go. So you put this on one stick, stick it in your, you know, boot from it, and then there you go, a whole bunch of installers, including BSD installers, you'll note. I was going to say, do they have free BSD on there? Yes, they do. Wow. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us here, Goran, and also Mr. Colonel Panic for sharing more awesome utilities. That's always appreciated. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. I guess that wraps up today's feedback segment. If anyone else has some tips on managing Pixie Boot, I've mostly used Cobbler for like large scale deploys and otherwise kind of just run my own DHCP server. But probably people have some better examples out there of how to do this at scale. If you do, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find our contact form. Submit feedback there, and uh, hey, you might just make it on the show. that brings us to the final segment of today's show that's right everyone's favorite it's the roundup but right before we get there you had one update you wanted to Uh, sneak uh, in uh. there what was it anyone who's been following my personal twitter account and i don't know why you would um i've been updating drives so i'll be posting zpool statuses with silvering resilvering on it oh my god that's so nerdy i love it yeah what 1% 1% left, 10% left, stuff like that. So uh, I'm doing that mostly so I see how long it takes to actually resilver as opposed to just waiting overnight. I guess I'm using Twitter as a public repo. <laughs> yeah, pretty uh, much. So I have a RAID Z2 array on FreeBSC 11 with six 3-terabyte drives. They've been running for three or four this array has been running for two or three years, something like that. Wow. And I'm slowly replacing it with five terabyte drives. So I'm pulling a drive, putting a new drive in, waiting about 24 hours for it to resilver. And then sometimes I start another one right after, but I haven't been. I've been waiting a few days. So now I'm halfway through. So I have three three terabyte drives and three five terabyte drives. But I still only see the space assigned that I would have with three terabyte drives. I won't get all the extra space until all the drives right. have been placed. And then it'll just suddenly boom. Explode. Boom. Magic. I hope it's space. not explode. I hope it's just <laughs> yeah. bigger. Please stay very calm. Don't disturb any of the bits. Just increase your available storage capacity. Do not move. Do not move. That's important with rotational media. Uh, and what is it with Doctor Who? It, it's uh, Stone Angels. Oh yeah, of course the uh, the Weeping Angels. Yeah, don't, don't blink. Don't, don't blink. No, never. Can't blink while you're podcasting anyway. Awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing that more, and uh, maybe someone can build a little uh, little app here where we can keep checking in on your status and, and get play by play updates. That would be so much fun. That would be a lot of fun, actually. A little progress bar we can stick up here. Oh, how's this resilvering going? I don't know yet. All right. Well, speaking of Twitter, that's kind of our first roundup item today. So uh, someone, a 
PB Lakes, Lakes, PB Lakers, TM. Hey, TechSnap Dan, this uh, A word is listening to what you say and might share that with developers. No shit. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised at this. Not, not at all. Um, hopefully they're anonymizing this and and why are they, why are they sharing it? They're not sharing it because it's your data. They're sharing it so that they have data that they can test with, that they can play with. Um, now if you're really worried about it, you can go in and tell Alexa to clear all the data. Sorry. She just started up Alexa, Alexa cancel. Um, you can go in through your Amazon web page and erase all the old recordings that you have there and just clear them all out because it does store it. It's, it's for yeah. data purposes. Well, I mean, it kind of makes sense in that I'm sure they have yeah. these kinds of stores internally already as they were developing the machine. You need to understand, you know, how the wake word mm-hmm. works, how that, what that interface looks like if you're going to be developing robust yeah. applications to run on the platform. And there is a, there's a mute button on top. You can press that and she stops listening. That's really nice. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either, actually. I don't no. I don't currently have one, so I've got two, one here and one out there. I use it mainly for news flashes and for weather. That's about it. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah, totally not a surprise, but you know, it is something you should be aware of, especially in today's world where there's more and more things uh Last episode, we talked on Linux Unplugged. We talked briefly. There's like a new HTC phone that's going to have um, the Echo Assistant built right in, so that it will be right in the phone there and will be constantly listening to you there. So if you're not comfortable with it, it, probably now is the time to stop using these things or just make sure you're aware that you might always kind of be listened to. Okay, so next up, now that we're all a little bit scared... This is actually maybe a good thing. Life is about to get a whole lot harder <laughs> for websites without HTTPS. What do they mean? Um, what they mean is um, everyone's winding up using HTTPS. Uh, so, some websites are even going HTTPS only. I haven't done that. Uh, I guess there are some good reasons for doing that, but I haven't done it yet. Uh, and it's fairly easy to do. And you see the incoming port 80 uh, request, you just redirect it over to HTTPS and it just works. Now, um, what they're doing is they're saying that um, you're getting all these things of, of where HTTP acts differently from HTTPS. And they're basically saying if everyone winds up going to HTTPS, it's going to be a much better um uh, outcome for all of their users. Uh, even some uh, Chrome websites are starting to uh, complain on HTTPS that you're using an, an older type of certificate and you should be using a newer one. Um, and then there's some search pages. This is all mostly about uh, protecting or, or preserving privacy. Basically, anything that's sent over HTTP can be read by anyone else. It can also inject stuff into the stream. If it's over HTTPS, what you're getting 
in your browser is what was sent from the server. There's no way to inject or remove or modify the traffic that's coming down. So that's the main reason. Now, what I do recall reading was something much more interesting than what I just said. Where was it? Uh, just the huge uptick in HTTPS over the past month or so. And some of them are saying that that it's sort of because of Let's Encrypt and other free um, certificate authorities, but no. I think it's just people getting much more used to using HTTPS. As an aside, can I just say I love these tweets that Troy Hunt sends out to various companies? It's yeah. like freaking amazing. Hey, uh, I noticed this is saying it's not secure. Is is something wrong? As if he like doesn't totally understand what the complete issue is here. But it's just perfect because it's like exactly the kind of prompting that people need for, especially you know, forms forms with credentials that actually do need to be encrypted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, to be fair, he that when you hit that button, it could be sending it out over HTTPS, but you don't know for sure, right? But what was downloaded to this page was is it? not secure, so it could be modified. So you don't anyway. Yeah, HTTPS, all the things. I do feel some amount of sympathy with people that you know it is it is additional complexity and it can make things harder to debug, harder to cache. Um, and there are certainly people that are like, well, I have my blog and i don't care if it's in- encrypted or not and there are other ways not automated necessarily but there are other ways to verify content um signed web pages etc uh so i can understand like especially old school you know are people who've been on the internet for a long time where you're like well this is so much everything's encrypted it's it's a lot of overhead and not everything is sensitive but it does i do think especially as we're adopting more security mm-hmm. as a practice and building it in it does seem like a really good default uh, the the main part in this article is that a lot of web browsers are now saying, oh, if you're filling in a form, it's going to report the page is not secure. Right. Just so that you know. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I mean, like, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of pages that are, like, rely on mixed, you know, mixed encryption of content right now that can be very confusing to make it like, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. well, the form is actually encrypted and it's sent posts over encryption, but, like, you can't tell. And then there are also those issues of, you know, just being able to determine, like, can this be modified in transit? And is the person who's hosting this actually the person I think they are? Now, that does get into public key infrastructure issues, as we talked about earlier in the show. So that's not a panacea by any means. Um, but it does, you know, it does help, especially when you're in situations in a foreign country or on a suspicious network or anything. So it's a good trend, and uh, it's nice to see browsers putting some pressure on. Yes, I like it. The more, the better. Okay, so next up, back to Twitter we are. BCBS sent out USB cards telling people to insert into their computer. Here is the prototype for the next big wave of security breaches. If you're not familiar, BCBS here is Blue Cross Blue Shield, which is a major medical insurance or provider in the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. It reminds me of the researchers who used to drop um, USB cards, USB sticks, thumb drives 
in parking lots of big companies to see what happened. And basically, no, don't do this. Because if you start sending this data to people, it gets them used to it. And then someone else is going to do it and say, hey, look, we can do the same thing. Let's yes. send this out. And we've already seen things like bad USB and other you know, firmware level vulnerability. Like, this yep. is just a great way to get owned in a way that you can't detect, don't know, and you start infecting others. Like This, this is no good at all. this is exactly the thing that we should be this training users not to do. This is not the early 2000s anymore. You shouldn't just be finding USBs and plugging them in any port that you can. It's not novel. It's not interesting. There are better ways to distribute content. Um, yikes. That's all I have for this one. Yeah. Publicly shamed. There we go. And that hopefully that will help and show them like I can understand how natural, especially from like a marketing perspective, right? Like where you're like, well, I just want to disseminate this. I worry about people who don't have great connections or don't want to download all of this content. USB drive makes it super easy, but it's just we don't have the kind of trust in the hardware, firmware stack level in these sorts of devices to make that viable whatsoever. As always, it's that, uh, you know, security, convenience, it's a spectrum and no one's happy with where we have to be. Yeah, this is scary. Okay, it's like well. it's like training the people to 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 just insert anything they can find into their computer. Yeah. Well, if you find a Wi-Fi network and just just join it, make sure you join it. Then go first thing, log into your bank account. Um, yep. Pre- yep. Preferably over that unsecured yep. form that we've been telling you about. Yep, yep. That's a good idea. Mm. Very good idea. I know what Let's I'm doing do after that. the show. Yeah. All right, anything else you want to add before we move on to our final story today? Uh, Yeah, the final one, the Google Glass article. You may not have it ready, but I think we should go to that one next. let's do it. And the the reason I say this is because I found it. uh, I found this when I was looking at one of the other articles today. And the original one that I was looking at basically was giving... Uh, saying that Alphabet, which is the company uh, above Google, is deciding that one of the things that they want to do is start using Google Glass in the industry. And I've always thought that Google Glass would be a great thing for man pages or something like that, or even just displaying information that you have to be reading or looking at while you're doing something else. And the best example they gave here was uh, someone, it, it was a wind turbine, but it really looked to me like they were putting together a rack, a rack, cabling up a rack. And I, I thought it was great because you need, you need to know where ca- cable one here goes to cable five up there. And you need, need to know that as you're wiring it up. And you can't always be looking at something over here on this table. But if you have it up here in your eye, in your eye and you can just cable it up and look at that look at it as you're using it it's a great way to do it now the google glass is actually about fifteen hundred dollars so i can't see a lot of people using it for home use but for work i think it's a great tool definitely well and i think you know we've also seen this sort of development with like the hollow lens in particular and it seems like yeah especially like heavy industry technical industry this is where AR and this sort of thing was first going to be where you can have motion motion tracking and real world awareness and not 
you know, it's not virtual and it's not a robot, but it's it's this fusion of of computer aided technology with humans judgments and human skills in the real world to make kind of both of them more efficient and like you're saying yeah like like cabling a rack that sounds great you know you can have like visual indicators it can turn bright green yep. and be like boom mm-hmm. yeah you did it correctly mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. of those sorts of or, things or or you, you could have it hooked up to something pinging and you're trying this cable on that cable and say yeah. oh it's that cable that's not working watching the trace route change as you like yeah yeah totally yeah. even just even just a man page for something yeah just where you can kind of have it up, you can still see what you're working on, but you can consult it all the time without having to change focus or change windows or type or do anything. Yeah. I like that a lot. I can find it useful. Uh, Someone, oh, Blake is in the channel. Oh, great. PB Blake's. Remember we? Yeah, we were just talking about it. He was on, yeah. He used to fix shield injection systems to quickly ID components and all different makes and models would have been a great plus specs like pressures and stuff like that. So I guess he's saying what make and model of injector is on this particular car because it varies so greatly. Yeah, absolutely. All kinds of, you know, like context aware information that we can suddenly have. Mm -hmm. I think think that's, that's going to be big. This is an Mm -hmm. interesting development. So you think you'll be buying one? No, no, not anytime soon. Not me, not me. Not me at all. Okay. Well, we'll have to wait. Maybe Noah here on the network will get another one when this when these uh, two point versions come out if they're you know easily available to the public anyway. Does no Does Noah have? He has the first one. Of the one. First... Yes. Is he still using it for something? You know, I'm not sure. I haven't heard him talk about it for a little while. I'll have to ask. See how that's going for him. I got, I am definitely intrigued. I don't have any actual use cases besides maybe man pages or trace routes or whatever in my day-to-day life but it definitely seems like a technology to watch well, and something that can hold, help us all okay hold on do you, do you have any smart watches or anything like that i don't currently one of the things that i use this the most for is uh two-factor authentication oh really that's interesting um one of them from work is just basically a slide mm-hmm and then it has all my Authy codes in here, like Google mm-hmm. Auth. All of them are in there. They're also available on the phone, but I don't have to get the phone out because they're right just... here and I just scroll through them. Yeah. And That's really neat. That, 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 that's a use case that we were never used to before it was available. Yeah. And so I have a feeling that the same thing same will thing happen here with, is that with, with Google Glass, glasses. Latent possibilities oh. that are just waiting yeah. to be taken advantage of. And one of the videos that they showed was uh, um, patient care. Yeah, that seems like a definitely a big one. So we'll see. Once the price comes down. Exactly. All right. Well, as always, something to watch here on the TechSnap program. Anything else you'd like to add before we uh, call it a no. day? No, I want to know what Noah's using his for. Yeah, all right. Well, I've got some homework there. I'll have to ask some questions of dear Noah. He's vacationing right now, but when he's back, oh, we will have updates. And in the meantime, this has been episode 328 of the TechSnap program. If you'd like to check out more, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find our backlog, the previous incarnation of the show, my other show, Linux Unplugged, and a whole bunch of other fine, nerdy programming. 
Plus, you can like contact us there. There's the calendar that tell you when to join us live. You can watch the show live. There's an IRC room there. There's various subreddits you can get to. All kinds of awesome stuff. So come join us next week. It's a lot of fun live. If not, send us your feedback. We'll try to read it right here on air. If you'd like to talk to more of us, just, you know, person to person or computer to person, I'm not, whatever you are, no judgments here. I'm at Wes Payne on Twitter. He is at TechSnap underscore Dan. Thank you very much for joining us here on the TechSnap program, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) 